Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Are you currently stuck in traffic? Have you recently experienced some frustration with your daily low country commute? Do you find yourself wishing for an alternative to the gridlock that is crippling our local highways? If so, then I've got a story for you. In the past, Charleston area commuters once had a variety of transportation options, including trains, trolleys, omnibuses, and bicycles. Today we're going to talk about the predecessor to the modern water taxi, the ferries that once plied across the Cooper River, shuttling people, animal, and vehicles between Charleston, Daniel Island, and Mount Pleasant. If you're looking for an alternative mode of transportation to ease your frustration, I recommend you begin with a journey back to a time when traveling was more of a relaxing adventure. Let's begin with some big background issues that will serve as a foundation for all the ferry details to come. First, it's important to recognize that during the first two and a half centuries of South Carolina's existence, there was no direct public funding for transportation infrastructure. Prior to the establishment of the State Highway Department in 1917, private citizens were, by and large, responsible for the creation and maintenance of all public roads, bridges, and ferries within their respective neighborhoods. Time doesn't permit a detailed investigation of this ancient system right now, so I'll just summarize some of the early legal parameters relating specifically to ferries. As European colonists spread across the coastal region of South Carolina in the late 1600s and early 1700s, they established dozens of ferries, at least one on every river, as a means to facilitate settlement and trade. Any man could build a ferry boat and charge customers for passage across a river, of course, but centuries of prior experience informed colonists that complaints would eventually arise about excessive fees, poor service, and encroachments on private property. To prevent such issues, the provincial government of South Carolina followed the English practice of awarding licenses or franchises to ferry operators who in turn would be bound by law to offer specific services. These ferry franchises were usually good from 7 to 14 years and could be renewed indefinitely as long as the franchisee provided reasonable services. Ferry owners were required to maintain their boats and causeways in good repair, to offer service on demand, day or night, and to charge tolls according to a fixed schedule of prices. Customers who were denied service or received unsatisfactory service or who were charged irregular fees could complain to the government, which had the power to revoke an owner's license or to refuse to renew the franchise. In order to prevent unnecessary competition, the law also specified that ferries should be located at least three miles apart. Prior to the middle of the 19th century, These rules define the transportation realities for everyone traveling across the river deltas of the South Carolina Lowcountry. There were dozens of ferries in early South Carolina, and each one has its own interesting history. In Charleston County alone, there were several long-standing ferries over the Ashley, Cooper, and Stono Rivers. Back in August of 2017, I did a program about the long history of the Ashley Ferry, more recently known as B-2. 
Spees Ferry, which served as a principal crossing of the Ashley River for a century and a half. At some point in the future, I'll have to assemble a program about the history of Stono Ferry, but for the moment, I'd like to concentrate on ferries over the Cooper River. More specifically, I'm going to focus on ferries crossing between the peninsula of Charleston and various points on the east bank of the Cooper River. For just over 200 years, ferry boats played an important role in the daily life of nearly everyone in the Charleston area. By transporting people, animals, and vehicles across the wide Cooper River, they facilitated culture and commerce and growth. By charging tolls for passage, and by enforcing laws designed to limit the mobility of enslaved people, however, these ferries also served to check the movements of our poor and disenfranchised inhabitants who formed the majority of our population. In short, the history of ferries across the Cooper River is an important topic for anyone trying to understand the mobility and transportation issues that shaped our community in the past and that continue to dog us today. In an effort to give due justice to this topic, I'm going to divide it into two parts. The first dealing with the first century of rising ferry traffic across the river, and the second part dealing with the second century of ferries, including both the zenith and the collapse of this ancient mode of transportation in the mid-20th century. The first licensed ferry to cross the Cooper River commenced in 1731, when Charles Codner obtained permission from the South Carolina legislature to carry passengers across the narrowest point in the river between Daniel Island and the neck of the Charleston Peninsula. According to the legislative statute granting him this power, Codner was permitted to operate a ferry between his property on the west side of Daniel Island to a point on the neck called the Lower Bluff on Long Point, which is now under the east end of the Navy base in North Charleston. Lowcountry residents might recall that both Daniel Island and the Neck were, until fairly recent years, very sparsely populated areas, and might wonder why the first ferry over the Cooper River connected these rural points. The answer has everything to do with their locations. Although very few people actually resided on Daniel Island and the Neck in the 1730s, the route from Codner's plantation to Long Point represented the shortest, easiest path over the river for all travelers commuting between urban Charleston and the fertile lands in the parish of St. Thomas, later called the parish of St. Thomas and St. Dennis, including such places as Canehoy, Bono, and Jamestown. The object of Codner's Ferry and its successors was not necessarily to get people to and from Daniel Island, but rather to link the rural frontier to the port of Charleston. The first ferry to connect Charleston to the parish of Christ Church, which is east of the Cooper River and south of the Wando River, was established by William Watson in 1733. In September of that year, the provincial legislature empowered Watson, the owner of a plantation at Hobcaw Point, to operate a ferry and to create a new road leading from the high road through the rural parish, past the parish church, directly to his ferry. The precise location of Watson's ferry landing is unclear today, but it was probably located somewhere on the south side of what is now called Remley's Point. 
like Codner's Ferry on Daniel Island, the Hobcaw Ferry, as it was generally known, served for a while as the principal terminal for travelers commuting along the coastline to and from Charleston, using what became known as the Georgetown Road, now called Highway 17. A second ferry connecting Charleston to Christchurch Parish commenced in June of 1748, when Mariner Henry Gray obtained permission from the legislature to operate a ferry from his property near the southeast side of Shem Creek. Between 1748 and 1940, this location, commonly called Hadrill's Point, evolved into the principal ferry landing east of the Cooper, although its use was not continuous over the years. Henry Gray, for example, sold his ferry property in 1749 or 1750 to Jacob Mott, who apparently did not sustain the ferry service for very long. In a 1765 newspaper advertisement, for example, Mr. Mott's plantation near Shem Creek and Hadrill's Point was described as a place, quote, where a late ferry was kept, end quote. In the years just before the American Revolution, a number of important changes took place in the ferry service across the Cooper River. In the autumn of 1764, Joseph Scott took over the ferry formerly known as Codner's Ferry, plying between his property on Daniel Island and Charleston Neck. And in the spring of 1765, he petitioned the provincial legislature for their endorsement. At the same time, Captain Clement Lempriere, a veteran mariner, likewise petitioned the legislature to reactivate the old ferry from his property at Hobcaw Point, formerly occupied by William Watson. The legislature granted both requests by passing an act in August of 1765, and all seemed well for the moment. Joseph Scott died in May of 1766, however, and his heirs discontinued the ferry service. Meanwhile, across the Wando River at Hobcaw Point, Captain Lempriere wasn't operating his ferry with the consistency and punctuality required by law. Seeing this lapse in service across the Cooper and Wando Rivers, an Englishman named Andrew Hibben inaugurated a new ferry service in September of 1769. At that time, Hibben advertised a ferry route from Charleston to Hobcaw Point and from Hobcaw to Scott's Ferry on Daniels Island. This service encroached on the ferry franchises held by Clement Lempriere and the heirs of Joseph Scott, of course, so the aggrieved parties complained to the provincial government. After hearing several petitions and reports on the matter, the South Carolina legislature determined that Lempriere and the heirs of Scott were in violation of the terms of their franchises, and so they empowered the interloper Hibben to continue his ferry business. On the eve of the American Revolution, therefore, Andrew Hibben held a virtual ferry monopoly across the Cooper River, plying between Hobcaw Point and a hard beach near the east end of Pinckney Street in Charleston. In February of 1785, John Clement petitioned the South Carolina legislature for permission to operate a ferry between his property on the neck of the Charleston Peninsula, now part of the Navy base, and his adjacent property on Thomas Island, adjacent to Daniel Island, that he called Itiwan. The legislature granted his request, 
and the name Clements Ferry became a fixed part of the local lexicon. John Clement's son, William, continued Clements Ferry into the early years of the 19th century, but the property was sold in late 1815 to the partnership of John Gordon and John Spring. After obtaining a franchise from the legislature, they operated Gordon and Springs Ferry for more than a decade. By the early 1830s, the service was briefly known as Holmes's Ferry before it quietly faded out of existence. These later proprietors are long forgotten, but the road leading from the countryside across Thomas Island is still known today as Clements Ferry Road. Meanwhile, across the Wando River in Christchurch Parish, Andrew Hibben embarked on a radical change in his ferry service during the American Revolution. His original service, established shortly before the war, landed at properties owned by other men at Hobcaw Point and at Scott's Ferry. During the war, however, Hibben purchased a tract of land at the southeast end of Shem Creek, known as Hadrell's Point, near a new suburban development called Greenwich Village, established in 1766. Here he established a new ferry route to Charleston, known as Hibbins Ferry, and leased the business to Alan Bolton. After the death of Andrew Hibben in 1784, and of Alan Bolton in May of 1786, control of Hibbins Ferry passed to James Hibben, who continued its operation well into the 19th century. During his proprietorship, the newly incorporated City of Charleston developed its first proper ferry landing in 1787 at a new public dock at the east end of Queen Street, adjacent to the fish market and to Prelo's Wharf. When President George Washington visited the Low Country in the spring of 1791, he traveled from Hibbins Ferry Landing at Hadrell's Point to Charleston's new ferry dock, which is now part of the newly renamed Joe Riley Waterfront Park. In the early months of 1788, a woman named Martha Bolton, the widow of Alan Bolton, former lessee of Hibbins Ferry, moved to the other side of Shem Creek and purchased a lease of Clement Lempriere's ferry at Hobcaw Point. After Martha Bolton surrendered her lease in the early 1790s, it appears that Anne Prince, Lempriere's daughter, assumed control of that business. A few years later, Anne's son, named Clement Lempriere Prince, complained to the state legislature that James Hibbins Ferry at Hadrell's Point was illegal because it was located less than three miles distant from the older ferry at Hobcaw Point. To settle the point, the legislature passed an act in December of 1799 directing Messrs. Prince and Hibben to hire their own surveyors to measure the distance and to return to the legislature if the distance between their respective ferry landings was indeed less than three miles. Months later, the two men returned with differing ideas about how the distance was supposed to be measured, whether in a straight line or by the nearest available road or watercourse. To settle the matter for Hibben and Prince, and for any other similar case that might arise in the future, the legislature passed an act in December of 1800 stating that in all disputed cases whatsoever, the distance between such disputed ferries should, quote, be admeasured either by the distance by water or the approachable road, 
and in no case by a straight line, except where a travelable and practicable road exists in such a straight line, or might be easily made, at as little expense and inconvenience to the public as in any other course." The distance between the two ferries was certainly less than three miles, as the crow flies, but greater than three miles by road or by water. So the young Mr. Prince had to eat crow, as the saying goes. Under the management of Clement Lempriere Prince, it appears that Hobcaw Ferry may not have operated consistently around the turn of the 19th century. In December 1807, however, Mr. Prince resurrected this service as what he called a new ferry, formerly Lempriere's, across the Cooper River to Charleston. It's unclear to me how long Prince's ferry survived, but it appears to have ceased by December of 1821, when William Matthews obtained permission from the state legislature to operate a ferry from the southwest end of what was then known as Prince's Ferry Road. Mr. Matthews called this new service Milton Ferry, not Milton's Ferry, but the inspiration behind that name is unclear to me. Most people called his business Matthews Ferry, however, and that name was eventually shortened to Mathis Ferry. Similarly, the Spur Road leading from the main Christchurch Highway to the ferry became known as Mathis Ferry Road, a moniker that survives to this day. If you turn off of Coleman Boulevard onto Patriots Point Road, on your left, you'll see a historical marker describing the former site of the tavern where customers once cooled their heels while waiting to catch Milton or Matthews Ferry. Let's take a break from the chronology and turn to some practical issues related to this transportation topic. For example, what sort of boats were used in the first century of ferry service across the Cooper River? To transport people without animals, they used long, narrow rowboats described as either canoes or passage boats. When someone stole such a vessel from ferry owner Charles Codner in 1744, he described it as, quote, a cypress canoe with three planks in her bottom, rows with six oars, and has a locker abaft. She is the ferry canoe from St. Thomas Island to Long Point, end quote. Even as late as the 1820s, both Hibbins Ferry and Milton Ferry continued to use long rowboats to transport pedestrians. To carry men on horseback or carriages or cattle, sheep, and hogs, ferry operators deployed what they generally called horseboats, which were longer, wider, oared vessels with flat bottoms. For the first century of our ferry operations, enslaved oarsmen rowed these boats back and forth across the Cooper River. In his 1783 will, for example, Andrew Hibben directed his heirs to sell some of his slaves, but to keep 14 Negro fellows constantly employed in the four boats of his ferry fleet, seven on the Charleston side and seven at Hadrill's Point. In the 1820s, the newest propulsion technology on the Cooper River was not the steamboat, but the team boat. By using a pair of horses walking on a circular treadmill, a team boat converted literal horsepower into mechanical energy that propelled a pair of side-mounted paddle wheels. 
Even after James Hibbins Ferry and others moved into the steam age, both Milton Ferry and Clements Ferry continued to use steamboats well into the 1830s. The landscape of a ferry landing would not be complete without a ferry house, a building that served to entertain waiting customers with beverages, meals, stables, and accommodations if necessary. The ferry house might be a simple structure where the ferry owner lived, or it might be a grander edifice designed to appeal to a more genteel clientele. A curiosity associated with John Clements Ferry was the pair of names he applied to the houses of entertainment located at each of his landings. Clements Ferry House on Charleston Neck was known as Dover Tavern, while the house on Thomas Island on the east side of Clowder Creek was called Calais Tavern. Furthermore, the ferry landscape also included several auxiliary structures or outbuildings, such as privies, storehouses, stables, and slave quarters. If a white man arrived at a ferry landing and needed transportation to his next destination, he could usually hire a horse at the ferry stable. Notice that I said white man. Women rarely traveled alone in early South Carolina and enslaved people were not allowed to travel alone without a note from their master, commonly called a ticket, that authorized and explained the nature of the slave's mission. The ferryman and the ferry house, therefore, formed part of a vast surveillance network in early South Carolina, composed of private citizens whose individual vigilance was vital to the mission of maintaining control over the enslaved majority. Let's end today's program on a lighter note. You might have been wondering, how long did it take to cross the Cooper River in a ferry rowboat or team boat? In the 18th century, the answer might have been, it takes as long as it takes. Life was a bit less hurried then, and our ferries did not operate on fixed schedules. As our population increased and became more mobile in the early decades of the early 19th century, however, the need to schedule our lives clearly became more important. In the autumn of 1822, for example, James Hibben announced that his rowboats would depart every other hour from each of his landings. That is to say, leaving Hadrill's Point at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and so on, and departing from Charleston at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and so on. That schedule suggests that the passage took about half an hour. An 1823 advertisement for Milton Ferry was more specific, stating that passengers can cross in from 25 to 30 minutes from Charleston to Milton. The distance from the east end of Queen Street, Joe Riley Waterfront Park, to Milton Ferry Landing was about a mile and a half. And so, 25 to 30 minutes is a pretty reasonable estimate for rowing across with four or six oarsmen. The advent of the steam engine cut that time in half, however, and ushered in a new era of ferry service for the Charleston area. Next week, we'll continue this maritime journey through the past with the second century of ferries across the Cooper River and explore the details of why and how this venerable service came to an end. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the water.
CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.